It's niche, very niche. But how exactly did ancient Athens bury their soldiers? Hi, this is Anya Leonard, founder and director of Classical Wisdom. You are listening to Classical Wisdom Speaks, a podcast dedicated to bringing ancient wisdom to modern minds. Today I'm speaking with Cesare Kusiewicz, a National Science Center postdoctoral fellow at the Faculty of History at the University of Gdansk, Poland, and junior research fellow at Wolfson's College at University of Cambridge, UK. He's also the author of The Treatment of the War Dead in Archaic Athens. We discuss what exactly are the ancient war dead, how the custom changed dramatically between the archaic and classical periods of ancient Greece, and what that change signifies. But before we begin, a quick thank you to our Classical Wisdom Society members who make this podcast possible. If you'd like to become a society member and help support the classics, please go to classicalwisdom.com and click start here. Now, let's delve into the archaic period and classical period of ancient Greece and how exactly they buried their warriors. One thing I thought uh, would be good to begin with, just to clarify, is what exactly is war dead for people who might not be so familiar with the term? Well, that's a pretty general question, um, but a very useful one, I guess. Um, and and what were, one which I suppose I don't, I haven't really thought about that much myself in my research because you sort of take it for granted. And um, But once you look into it, it does become a bit more complicated. But I, assume that I, I would think the most general sort of definition would be a, a person involved in a military encounter um, that dies in that in that encounter but then you'd have to ask yourself what's all all sorts of questions of what does it mean to be involved in a military encounter does it mean you have to be involved in the fighting does it mean that you're just there with the army in whatever role whether as a helper or someone who's in the camp or anything like that um would that qualify you as a warrior if you die in that conflict um, it would be about where you draw the line. I think that the, the line that is usually drawn for ancient sources is for is basically for warriors. So you actually have to die in the battle to be classified as a war dead and uh, either brought back home or buried on the battlefield. It didn't matter that much in the classical period as to what your social standing was. So say whether you were a citizen, whether you were a foreigner, whether you were a slave fighting in the army um, but I would say roughly that would be my definition for it as well oh the poor civilians that just you know get slaughtered they don't even get the the, the term war dead which sounds so much better than just byproduct of war or something. yes I suppose so yeah so you've actually written a, quite a niche book uh, but I think it's quite fascinating is specifically on archaic war dead in Athens, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is very, we're, we're getting into a very tiny specific point of history, um, which is fascinating because it, it's something I think most people haven't really thought about a lot. Um, and when you try to figure out how, what, how this, the war dead were dealt with, 
um, to go that far and back in history, you have to go to Homer. Um, is there any other literary evidence you can use regularly? And, and you have archaeological evidence. What, what kind of evidence do you have, basically? Mm, so there isn't much evidence. As I think as with any, um, any thing, an issue which relates to early Greek history, the problem is evidence. Uh, where did you get it from? And I think that also applies to Homer himself, um, because or whoever wrote the, the, the Iliad and the Odyssey, um, which is to what extent are we able to use that as a historical source? And if so, uh, how do we use it? For which period was it? Uh, should we use it for the Bronze Age? Should we use it for the Iron Age? Should we use it for the Archaic period, etc.? So these are all sorts of questions which are massive questions for historians and archaeologists of that period. Um, and, and you'll get all sorts of answers. Some, some will say no, some will say yes, some will say yes, but only certain things there, like maybe the representation of the uh, Homeric society, maybe the representation of warfare, maybe just the ideology of it, or just one aspect of it, which has some sort of historical significance that we're able to use. I like to think of it of, um, because of its extraordinary success, I think, for the Greeks, to me, and, and the fact that it survived for such a long time, to me, this suggests that this must have been relevant to early audiences. And then the versions that we have must have been relevant in some way to the audiences in the archaic period. So, when, so whenever they would hear a performance, they would have been able to relate to what's there in the story. So it would have been something that they can understand, that they can somehow relate to their own lives, um, to what happened, whether, whether it was just a general everyday life in a society, whether it was war and warfare or, or anything like that. Um, so I, I think as such, I like to see it as that there is much in there that is very useful, but if, if sort of carefully approached. Um, as for other evidence for my book, which as you said, is a niche subject for sure, um, I've uh, decided to focus on this, uh, especially on the Athenian side, because there is some evidence, admittedly not a lot, but more than what we would get for other places in Greece, which is usually what happens in Athens anyway, which, why we get this sort of focus on Athens in uh, modern works as well, because the evidence is just there uh, when it isn't for other places. So, so for my book, the evidence I use, apart from Homer, it's the other sort of vast body of early Greek mythology, which, which we know as the epic cycle, which are sort of these fragments of, um, of poems similar in many ways to the Iliad and the Odyssey, which haven't survived, but they largely deal with the sort of entire mythical history of Greece, which includes the Trojan Wars, but also has other things like the uh, exploit of Hercules or the... Uh, the seven against Thebes or anything like that. Um, now, I, I find it fascinating myself um, because I think that these things tend to be overlooked by some historians of early Greece and definitely military historians. They just don't treat this as evidence of any value whatsoever because it's fragments, because we don't even know if they're genuine, etc., etc. So, so, So I thought, well, what about we do look at them and what about what, what, what happens if we do try to sort of uh, extract some value from it? Um, 
And admittedly, as I said, it's fragment, but if you try and reconstruct what it might have been in its original version, using some other sources as well, then you do have this other sort of body of evidence, literary evidence, from which you might get an idea of um, how life was and how warfare was depicted and primarily idealized um, in, uh, in archaic Greece. Um, and this is one of the chapters in my book, uh, which, which I quite like myself because I find it really um, fascinating and exhilarating to be able to sort of delve into that world of early Greek myths, which is just fragments and sort of snippets, which then you have to link with art and other evidence which you have from the period to try and build a story. Um, but, of, but we do have other evidence for the war that especially, primarily uh, the graves uh, of, individual, uh, of individual men who were buried in Athens and in Attica. They, they have these very impressive grave markers and some of them have epigrams which say very, very specifically that they died in war, uh, which is our evidence for, well, this is maybe what they were doing with the war dead, as in bringing them back home to be buried in Athens and in Attica. And the other evidence which I use in my book as well is the uh, representations on vases, uh, primarily black figure, which is obviously an enormous resource uh, for Athens, especially for that period, because of course in the sixth century BC, black figure pottery in Athens was really the thing in the Greek world and in the wider sort of Mediterranean world, they really monopolized the market, which means that there's loads of images, many of which represent war and the war as well. Um, and admittedly, a lot of them, if not most of them, are not actually were not actually found in Athens and in Attica, but in other places like uh, Etruria, Sicily, and North Africa, etc. But we know that they were made in Athens, uh, so it's a really wonderful source, which I think that historians of warfare especially tend to overlook it because it's difficult to use. You don't really know what these scenes represent. Do they represent myths? Do they represent everyday life? Do they represent something in between? Um, so yes, there is, I would say there's relatively a lot, but it's difficult to use. Um, so uh, that would be my answer. Well, you know, it is really interesting when you think about how societies deal with death. And that really tells you a lot about their priorities and, and their beliefs. And it, it's, it's quite an interesting window into the culture. Uh, and for the ancient Greeks, the, the way they dealt with death was extremely important. Um, it was very important to them. And, you know, you, will, you only have to think of, say, Antigone. Like, Antigone risks everything in order to give her brother a proper funeral and burial, uh, you know, to her, her own detriment. That was how important it was to her. So you, you can, and, and you see it a lot of times, you know, in the Iliad and in the Odyssey and, and the more, when they take pauses in order to bury their dead. It, you know, it's like, okay, everybody has to stop for a moment, bury your dead. Um, it, it's very important to everybody. So was, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what the practice was for burying the war dead and how it was different from just normal dead people. <laughs> Yes, um, so you bring up a lot of really interesting points here because uh, you brought Sophocles and you brought Antigone, which is obviously a really interesting story, which does really demonstrate this importance of proper treatment and respectful treatment for the dead, voided in this case, actually. Uh, but it's 
debt in general. And, um, and I like that you brought it up because that sort of brings me up to why I'm doing this thing, why I got interested in the war debt, because uh, let's face it, it's a bit of a new subject and it's a bit odd for people to be looking into this. Um, and it actually brings me back to, the, to, to my childhood, um, to my mum, uh, who used to read uh, the uh, Iliad to me as a child. Of, it was obviously a very sanitized, watered-down version of the Iliad. Um, but, but, but one scene which I do remember from it very vividly was the scene uh, of Hector's death and um, how he was maltreated, how his body was dragged behind the chariot over many days, etc. And, and as a child, that really sort of stuck in my head, like, okay, this, was, this, is, um, this is pretty brutal. I mean, it was... The, the illustrations in the book were nice, but it's just, I remember this as a child. And, and of course, now I know about this, that in, in The Idiot, of course, this scene does demonstrate in some way the, the horribleness and the gruesome nature of war. But at the same time, the scene is also the, the sort of moment of the triumph of um, one of the main heroes of the poem, which, which was, of course, Achilles that's when he gets his revenge and that is his way to triumph. And, and in the Iliad, there isn't necessarily any way in which we get the sense that that was wrong. I think to our modern sensibilities, that sounds like this is wrong. But when you read, when you read the poem, actually there are many examples of uh, really brutal treatment and mutilations of the war that happening, which aren't in any sort of way criticized by the poet. And they're just normal sort of episodes and um, events sort of occurring in a war. And then I remember after this, I had this image as a child. I was in high school and in high school, obviously, you have to read certain things. Um, um, and, and one of them in high school was we had to read dramas of Sophocles and one of them was Antigone. And that's when I first um, encountered what you're saying now which is this attitude that, no, the dead were really important. Uh, you have to treat them with proper respect and you have to treat them with, with, um, with honor, etc. cetera, um, which made me think, well, well, wait a minute, that's not what I remember from the Iliad. That's not the Hector I remember and all of those other scenes. So that made me figure, well, something is going on here. And I think ever since when I was doing my university studies, et cetera, I was thinking I need to return to this question of why was there a change in the ideology as to what you do with the word that was there or, or is that not the case? And, and that's basically what I did my PhD on and what this book is on about, um, trying to investigate whether there was a change and if so, how it happened and when it happened. Um, so, you said something interesting about um, there being those scenes when they, in, in the Iliad, when they pause to, to sort of um, pick up all the dead and to collect them and to make sure that they're buried. And you're right, there is such a scene in the Iliad in Book 7, which is very famous, in which the Trojans and the Greeks basically make a short truth to, to say, well, hold on uh, for a day here, let's just make sure that we have all the dead, we bury them, and uh, they bury them in one sort of mass grave for everyone from the field on the Greek side and on the Trojan side. Um, and we're sort of given the impression that this is the norm, this is what happens because they respect their dead. Um, but the picture I think is far more complicated than that. 
And, 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 and the way I like to approach this is, uh, is, is if you have your Iliad, you pick it up, the very first lines of the Iliad, like literally the first lines, are about, from what I remember, um, about the anger, the anger of Achilles, uh, which destroyed the, the, the souls of many lives of the Greeks and left their bodies prey to dogs and birds feasting. Um, and all this was, um, by all this, Zeus's will was uh, essentially um, was accomplished. Um, so the idea you get literally from the very first lines of the Iliad is that there are many bodies on the battlefield unburied, eaten by dogs and buried in animals, uh, which is a pretty strong image, right, to start the poem with. Um, and, uh, and that image is actually sustained throughout. So if you read the Iliad looking for like what happens to the bodies of the sort of rank and file soldiers that are the non-elite sort of no not really the heroes of the poems, the impression you get that they're just lying unburied there all, all the time and no one really cares about them. You have this one scene which you say of the mass burial in which they have a break and yes, they do end up in one massive grave. So they do something every now and then, or at least that's the impression we get. Although some historians would actually say that the whole scene was a later um, interpolation by the Athenians, I think, in the fifth or the fourth century, who added the whole scene to the poem. Now, I don't want to go into this, but that is also a possibility. But otherwise, if you're if you're rank and file in the Iliad, you're likely to end up unburied on the battlefield for days, um, eaten by dogs and birds, and no one really cares about you. Um, then, if you if you're still holding your Iliad, if you then move to the very last scene the uh, the last lines literally the last lines of the book the iliad ends with the burial of hector um, and all that we hear about it is that they built him a massive uh, burial mound that there was a glorious feast in his honor and uh, that's how the iliad ends so what you get is this um, wonderful sort of contrast of what happens to the uh, the rank and file the non-elite and then what happens to the big heroes of poems who get individual burials who are looked after and uh, who are in the poems always fought over whenever they die um, so when you read the Iliad you realize that one of the most uh, one of the biggest scenes which you see almost everywhere in any fighting sequences fights over the dead but when you actually look into it the dead are always these elite men these main heroes of the poems they are fought over to be rescued and buried individually if you're a non-elite, um, well, firstly, we don't hear about you in the poem. Uh, and if we do, it will be because your body is unburied. And that's one of the few ways in which we hear that you actually exist, um, which I find is really interesting. You, uh, you would think, though, just like logistically, it would be hard to have a battle with bodies everywhere. I mean, you know, you're trying to like get your enemy and smite him down and you're accidentally stepping on your old mate's face. I mean, it, surely... There's got to be logistics involved here and just cleaning it up from time to time. You absolutely would, yes. And it's, um, and, but, but even this is present in the Iliad as well. So there are scenes in which I think in book 10, there is, um, there is this big uh, episode in which I think it's Odysseus and I think Diomedes who sort of make a night expedition to, to see what's going on in the Trojan camp in the night. 
um, and, and they see someone approaching and what they do literally is hide among the corpses, um, which suggests that in the night, there is this area between the armies where you can, when there's just bodies everywhere and you can hide among them. Uh, and I think it's repeated twice in the poems. Otherwise, there are scenes in which we hear that the, the Greeks and I think the Trojans as well do a, a sort of assembly in a place which is free of corpses. Um, and again, it just gives you this, this idea that there's corpses everywhere. As to how it would work on a practical level, you're right, it probably wouldn't, but I think it's more about this image of, you know, it's war, there are bodies everywhere. Um, but when you look into it, it's clearly the bodies of the people that no one really cares about. Uh, yeah. In, in modern warfare, just as a contrast, and I clearly don't know how this is dealt. I mean, in World War One and World War Two, like in trenches and such, did did they remove the dead? Or yes, well, I I'm not an expert on this, but I have looked a little bit into it um, because uh, one of the big aspects of my research was. Um, what happens to the wounded once they die, uh, not necessarily in the immediate instance of their death, but afterwards, as in, are the dead repatriated? Are, are, are they brought back home, etc.? And uh, because, of, of course, I'm looking at Athens, and one thing that everyone knows about Athens is the classical practice um, in which there's um, a sort of publicly organized funeral every year in which Athens are at war, in which, uh, in which everyone who has fallen fighting for the city is buried um, in, um, in the state cemetery. Uh, so that obviously means repatriation, everyone is brought back. And, and I think being ignorant as, as I am most of the times, I thought that, well, if, if it was happening in Athens, then, then surely afterwards this, was this, this has been happening everywhere. Um, because I think we sort of used this image of, uh, especially if in the modern sort of American idea that, you know, you bring the dead back home um, in a coffin wrapped in a flag and then you bury them in the National Cemetery, etc. But, but when I looked into this question, that is actually a relatively recent phenomenon, uh, which I find very fascinating. So the Americans themselves, for instance, they've um, begun repatriating on a massive sort of scale only during the First World War. And then it was optional. So it was the decision of the family as to did you want your sons brought back home or not. Um, otherwise, there was an option for them to be buried uh, either in France or whenever they had a cemetery abroad. But as a sort of option which became then widespread for everyone in the US armies, I think that relates to that relates to the uh, Korean War. That's when it actually first, first started on the level that we were used to right now. So that is really very recent history. Um, I think for the British, that was the Falklands War when it really started. Um, and that's something which I find just mind boggling when I, uh, for a historian of the ancient world, dealing with Athens, assuming that, well, this, is, this was such a big symbol of their city, um, and, and this is what many people will most remember about them, their war-making practice, that this would have been more widespread in the history of mankind in general, but it hasn't been. Um, there's a reason for it, uh, but... Um, that would be the short answer. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's, I never even realized that. You're totally right. The imagery is so 
poignant now that it's so symbolic that we we just think that it, it's such a powerful image that we use and, and conjure that that it would have been employed more often, I suppose, in the past. Um, but you you mentioned the classical period. Maybe you can just uh, explain the differences in the burial practices between the classical and the archaic period. Right. Um, that's a big question. Um, so, uh, but that is exactly what my book um, aims to answer and, and, and deals with. Um, and I think that if I was to, to give you a short summary of it, um, I think that the difference occurs on many levels. And, and, and one of the central premises of my book is um, that the war debt in general, uh, and that's sort of one of the big questions which I ask myself, um, and I still haven't quite got the answer to is um, who do the war debt belong to? Um, and I think it's a question many, in many ways relevant still nowadays. Do they belong to the state or do they belong to the families? Um, and, and I think in general, there's no clear answer um, as to who they belong to, who, who does your body belong to once you die in war. Um, and in Athens, I think what I see is for the archaic period, uh, which is what my book is about, the, uh, the whole system of what you do with, uh, with someone, with a warrior who dies in war is very much organized along the private lines and the private modes. So um, it, the families of the fallen warriors who arrange what happens to them. Now, most often what will happen, or at least what we see in our evidence, is that they are brought back home uh, to be buried in their own sort of neighborhoods, in their own family plots and cemeteries, usually in very distinguished uh, ways and, and areas in their um, in their own neighborhoods. Um, and um, what happens with this is that the evidence for this that we have is basically their memorials, so their grave markers, etc. Now, uh, many people might be familiar with them. They would be either sort of this big imposing sort of statues, like the Kuroi, uh, which would be painted, or the sort of stelae, so these sort of marble reliefs of them sort of posing as warriors, etc. They might have epigrams sometimes which, as I said, would then say that this man died in war. There is a very famous one, an epigram of a man whose name was Croesus, probably named after the famous Lydian monarch. Um, and that's how we get the sense that some of them were brought back, um, were brought back so they die in war, they die in battle, and then their families arrange for them to be brought back to have an individual and sort of family burial. Um, and I think the markers themselves they probably would have served as a way to to sort of advertise the the wealth of the family, their social rank, their social um, sort of um, um, standing in the community, etc. But I think it was also a way, which is perhaps less thought of, it was a way for the families perhaps also to cope with the loss uh, of, of a family member, to to have an opportunity to to see you know your son or husband to to wash his body to grieve over him and then to bury him must have been really really important or at least i would think it was um, the interesting thing about this is that if we assume a system of private uh, repatriation uh, then 
then that means that there's a lot of the debt that we just don't know what happened with them because the debt I just mentioned are most likely elite Athenians fighting and, and the citizen armies that were able to avoid this. As to what happened to the, the rest of the Athenians who weren't able to avoid such a treatment, uh, so the ones for which we don't have any grave markers, for which we have no evidence of, well, um, the assumption would be that they would just be buried on the battlefield, that there would be a grave, a sort of mass grave, similar to the one we see in Homer in the Iliad, um, and that's where they would end up. Uh, the problem for early Greece in general is there is no evidence of such mass burials in the Greek world. There's maybe one or two, none in Attica. So as far as we're concerned, um, the, the rank and file, the non-elite soldiers fighting in, in early Athenian armies, they're just not there. They are not present. We were not able to find them. Now, this can mean one of, one of two things. It can either mean that they were simply not there in the armies, and the armies were sort of monopolized and dominated by the elites. So they're small, um, which means that the number of the dead was obviously much lower, which I think many historians would say was the case in early Athens. Or we simply have to look harder for them and find them somewhere. But uh, as I said, if anything, their burials are just archaeologically invisible, um, and, and, and it's hard to see that. And then to move on to the classical period. So this is what we see in early Greece. <clears throat> and then, of course, there was the famous switch, um, and uh, which which happened for classical Athens. And as to when it happened, well. There are two major things which happened to Athens around the end of the, um, of the archaic era. The first was uh, the reforms of Pleisthenes and the introduction of democracy. Um, and then the second were, uh, were the Persian Wars. Um, and both of them are really important and they helped to, to shape a sense of Athenian identity. Um, and, and I think they also provided an an opportunity for the Athenians to reorganize their army. Um, and one of those, uh, one of the ways in which they did that was to move from uh, private forms of dealing with the war, did repatriate them, etc., to forms which were more public. So in a way, the dead moved from private hand, hands of Athenian families onto the hands of the state, um, which must have been a huge shift and must have had a profound effect on the Athenians in general um, and and it certainly did. I think we hear of the first uh, mass graves on the battlefields towards the end of the sixth century for the Athenians which is why we have to assume that's when the practice of private repatriation ended. That's also one roughly when we don't see anymore those grave markers in the cemeteries for Athenian soldiers they just disappear um, which is a neat sort of uh, change for us to relate to something was happening elsewhere. And there's also many changes happening in, um, in Athenian art, uh, black figure and red figure. So the scenes of sort of fighting over the dead, which were really big uh, in uh, black figure art, they also disappear right about the same time. It seems of sort of retrieval the dead from the battlefield, also very popular in Athenian art, also disappeared around the same time. So you clearly sense something has changed, and, and the explanation is most likely that yes, they just moved from this private mode to the public mode, and the dead were no longer in the hands of the families, but and then moved 
you, you know, in the hands of the state. Well, wow, that's absolutely fascinating. I, I mean, and it really goes to show uh, how impactful a cultural shift can be. And that, you, I mean, you think just the idea of the state being more prominent in people's lives, even in death, but also just the, the, the role that democracy would play in regards to maybe seeing individuals potentially is more important, I suppose, because you have the voice of the people. And so now the individual voice of the dead people also <laughs> matters more yeah. because yeah, I mean, maybe they just didn't care as much. Um, and I mean, you see that like the value of life still being different depending on the, the structure of the state or the culture, um, the value of an individual life having more or less depending on that those cultural things. So um, is there anything that you can sort of insight that we can gain from this shift uh, or maybe more specifically on the archaic period that's sort of illuminating the culture? Um, yes, that's, that's a really interesting question. Um, and I think also something you said, there are two things basically which spring to my mind uh, immediately. Um, and I think the first one, whenever I think about this whole subject, is um, the incredible infrastructure and the sort of administrational might of Athens, of classical Athens. Um, and when I say this in my research, in which I obviously don't know that much at classical Athens, is I had to decide what happens if you're an elite um, elite warrior uh, fighting for the army in Athens in, in, in uh, the archaic period, and you die fighting abroad, say on Lesbos or some other island far away, what then happens to you? And um, as I said, my assumption was that you would be brought back to your family. Um, but of course, if it's far away, then that will be hard. Um, because it's likely to be summer, it's very hot, it will take days, so it's just, it's going to be difficult. There will be problems. And smelly. So, yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. There, there will be problems. So the obvious answer is, well, that would not happen. So what would happen is you would be uh, burned uh, and then your remains will be returned to your loved ones. So I had to look into sort of the, the logistics and the sort of practicalities of the cremations. How do you cremate a body? I know it sounds a bit gruesome, but, um, you know, it happened a lot and it was one of the main burial forms in ancient Greece. So once I looked into it, I realized that actually the whole thing is very expensive business. Uh, so it takes, um, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of wood. It takes a lot of man hours as well, because you have to watch over the fire and uh, it's really, really difficult. But I decided that it's just about feasible to do it for the few men, like just a handful of men who died fighting abroad. I thought, yes, that is just about feasible. Very expensive, but they were elite, so they had the means to do that, or their families had the means to do that. And then, of course, I had to think about, well, so what happens in a classical period when it's all of a sudden not just a handful of men, but it's hundreds of men and sometimes more? And of course, what we hear um, from the account of, um, of Thucydides is that what the Athenians did after every battle is they basically uh, identified all of the, they identified all of the casualties. They've arranged them by tribes 
and then they buried each tribe on a separate funeral pyre, and then they returned the remains back to Athens. So when you think about this in practice, that is an enormously complicated operation. You need an enormous amount of wood, natural resources, man hours as well, and then to, to, to first identify the dead, which would have been usually naked. Well, not usually, but would have sometimes been naked. It was, it was, it really blows your mind. And in fact, to an extent that there's some people, um, including a, a friend of mine, um, whose name is Owen Rees, who recently wrote an article about it, saying, well, actually, this is way, way too difficult. So perhaps this is not what happened. Um, it's really that radical. Uh, but I don't want to get into that debate. Uh, but when I think about it, it's, it's just, I am absolutely astonished by the fact that they were able to do that and, and that it worked. Um, but that, this at the same time made me ask the question of, of, of why? Why would they do that if, if there was another option, which was much simpler, of just burying all of the casualties on the battlefield? which, for instance, um, was happening in Sparta. They used to bury everyone on the battlefield. An option which is much easier, much quicker, and much cheaper as well. Uh, and, and you could argue no less honorable in some way. Um, but the Athenians didn't do that. Um, and, and why they didn't do that, that's the big sort of question which, which I got myself into thinking about. Um, and it made me think, well, there must have been a reason for it, why they've invested so much um, of material resources, of time, of, uh, of sort of their involvement in terms of art and culture, etc. you know, the funeral speeches, the games, etc., etc. There must be a reason for it, which is not just they wanted to honor the dead in an appropriate way, which they did, of course, I'm not saying that they didn't, but there must have been a reason for it. And when you look at the ideology of the process of um, the state funerals in Athens, what they really foster is the sense of, um, of sort of patriotism, of really glorifying this idea of sacrificing your life for the community, for your city. And, um, and that applied not only to the elites as it did in the past, but to everyone. So that was regardless of your economic or social standing, regardless of where you were from, regardless even of your citizenship. If you fought for Athens, this is what you would get, the treatment of heroes. You would be buried in the state cemetery. And that made me think, well, that this, in many ways, this makes sense because once this is introduced in Athens, what happens at the same time as well is this big program of military expansion uh, which the which the Athenians embark on um, and of course what you need for any program of military expansion is you need the support of your citizens and you need their loyalty uh, because let's not forget it's a democracy so it was the citizens who voted for war and when you think about it in those terms the way to to gain that support and that loyalty from the citizens would have been to appeal to the ones, to, to everyone, to as wide sort of a group as possible, to say that serving in the army and embarking on these things would have was a very glorious thing. You were sacrificing your life for the city, etc., etc. And I think once you look about it this light and in this way, 
it becomes more than just um, a way to honor the fallen sons, etc. And, and, and you can link it into other things which are happening sort of in the political world. And uh, I know this is a long-winded answer, but I, I'm really struck by the fact that how a lot of this rhetoric is still in many ways relevant nowadays in modern discourses on the war dead. And I've uh, recently read a book on, on how the war dead are honored in the US again. And I think it opened up with a quote from Sophocles, from Antigone. And throughout, there are so many different instances where I think Euripides was, uh, was brought up in Herodotus and Thucydides. Well, I wouldn't say on, on every page, but on many pages throughout the book. And they were sort of used to, to justify the, the, the sort of ancient sort of pedigree of this way of treating the war dead. Um, and um, of course, it's very appealing. I would agree that it is because it's a very strong ideal and paradigm. But I think what's important for us is to understand that things like the state funeral in Athens um, and its ideology were obviously products of a very sort of specific, specific set of historical circumstances. And trying to get some, you know, ancient sort of wisdom from it, if you like, um, is pretty complicated and sometimes, you know, questionable to an extent as well. And I think when you think about the fact that the state funeral in Athens coincided with this massive program of military expansion, this really tells you something. Wow. So it's basically state propaganda. But I didn't want to say <laughs> No, you didn't say that. I said that. No, I, <laughs> it, it, no, I mean, it, it, it's really interesting because, um, yeah, if you're going to try to convince young men to give up their lives, um, that you want to make it worthwhile. And if you sort of glorify the death and make it, you know, dripping with dignity and honor and respect, then not only will the young men more likely go and fight to their deaths, but their families will let them go because it will give such honor upon the family and the community. And um, it's interesting too, what you said about the dividing by tribes that, that makes it's, it, Interesting to remember that archaic Athens was such a society orientated culture that the communities were very important. And so that the bodies may have not been entirely private or public, but sort of community owned, um, that they would sort of take that into individual tribes. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, so, so, so what, I, what I said and what I think is important here is that was the big idea behind the switch from the archaic to the classical period was exactly there. It, it, it happened there. That while in the archaic period, these bodies didn't belong to the state, in the classical period they did. Um, and I think this is an important point to make about, and an, an, important, point I, an important point I make in my book, um, which is about this sense of fostering that spirit, which was there in the archaic period for sure. But it's really interesting, for instance, to note that in the epigrams we have for the individual warded from the archaic period in this, you know, on those war memorials, the graves, none of them mention the city of Athens, which I find absolutely fascinating. So they just mention the heroism of an individual uh, dying in the front ranks, very much like a line from the Iliad, or very sort of reminiscent. But they never mention sacrifice for the community, 
which is absolutely fascinating. Whereas in the classical period, of course, this is all that is mentioned. There is no talk of individual uh, achievement and heroism. Everything is very sort of collective and uh, you do it for the glory of the city. You don't do it for the glory of yourself, which is a discourse which is far bigger in the archaic period, which is really fascinating. Um, just to talk about the logistics for one second, um, when you mentioned the, the burning pyres and such, uh, it made me think of uh, India, actually. I don't know if you spent much time in Varanasi, but you go and you walk along the Ganges and you have the burning guts and all the individual pyres like along the river. Um, would, would they have had something similar to that? I mean, I suppose that you can see sort of logistically individual burnings on scale. <laughs> yes, I mean, that is the question really of how did they do it in practice? Um, and the answer is that we don't know uh, because what we get from, uh, from Thucydides who gives us this account of yes, separate burning pyres for each tribe. So basically 10 of them. Um, then in the only other fragment instance in which he discusses what happens after a battle, he actually mentions just a single funeral pyre. Um, so he uses the word in Greek, which I don't remember now, uh, which is in singular. Um, so clearly he gives the impression, well, there's only one funeral pyre for everyone, which doesn't work based on what he said before, uh, because he said before, you know, it's in separate tribes so that they can then each be put in a separate coffin um, and everyone is sort of neatly distinguished and sorted. Whereas then in the only fragment in which he actually tells us what happened after a sort of particular battle, he says, no, just one, fun one, fun one funeral pyre, which is uh, interesting. Um, but as I said, um, there is this sort of new wave in scholarship, which tends to question this. So says, well, to burn, to, to, to invest so much into this, it's just not humanely possible. Uh, and, and, and these bodies burn for such a long time as well. Um, and it requires so much fuel, so much wood, etc., that it's just difficult to organize and practice. So the question sort of becomes to what extent this is just an idealized symbol which we're giving. Whereas in practice, the whole thing would have been far, far more messy and perhaps unpleasant as well. I mean, I could go into more detail into how long you actually need to burn a body, but I can only say that <laughs> they're very unpleasant. So, um, yes, we have this idealized narrative on the one hand, but then when you look into it in more detail, it might be that it wasn't quite as such and it was far more messy in practice. Thank you for listening to Classical Wisdom Speaks. Classical Wisdom Society members can listen to the entire podcast with Cesare at classicalwisdom.com. If you would like to learn more about Cesare's book, The Treatment of the War Dead in Archaic Athens, please go to bloomsbury.com. <laughs>